You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I know that it says 2 Timothy on the screen. Uh, We'll explain why in a little bit here, but... uh, but we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, last week was our 15th anniversary celebration here at Oak Hill. We were so excited to, to turn that corner and, and to uh, look forward to the next, uh, what did Nate call it, uh, 15 to 58, right? What's, what's Oak Hill going to be like at year 58? And, uh, and so we're, uh, we were getting ready as a worship team last week and David uh, was, was saying to the worship team, it, it feels like we're finally turning over a page because at the beginning of May, we moved and we, we got into a new building and all the talk was about, you know, new building, new space, how, the logistics of all these things, you know, those sorts of things. And then it, it takes a little while to kind of get settled in. Uh, and then we celebrated our 15th anniversary and, and, and David was like, it just feels like we, we turned a page today. And I, I very much agreed with him. And then, and then Pastor Nate uh, said in his sermon, uh, you, you, you bought a, home, a house, now what? Right? And, and little did he know that in my annual report that I had written, the article that I uh, had written for the annual report, I titled, We Bought a Home, Now What? Right? And, and so it just seems to be the question on all of our minds. It's like, okay, uh, you know, the big, the big push was get here, get into this building. Now what? And the answer is very, very simple. It, it, it's not rocket science, but you could answer it. The, the now what is that we are going to be the church. Right? The church was never about a building to begin with. It's about being the church. It's about the people that God has assembled. And so because that now what question is so right on the tip of our tongue, I thought that I would use today as a vision Sunday of sorts. And it's great. Like We had to add more chairs, so it's great that we're not all on vacation yet. We can catch this vision together before you know we start heading our separate ways for the summer, but, uh, you know, Pastor Nate had, had been preaching last Sunday for our anniversary. Uh, this week, Katie and I uh, and the family are going to be on vacation, and so I have uh, Pastor Matthew Nicosia from Fairfax Bible Church preaching next Sunday, and so I had this weird moment where I just had this one opportunity for a sermon in between there before we started into the, the brand new series in in the summer here, and I was just praying along with the elders, like, what does God want us to do with this Sunday? What does he want to speak to us about this Sunday? And as I was praying about that, I'm like, wow, really, Lord? You want, you want that and that and that and that? I believe that he has a whole bunch that he wants for us this Sunday if we would be uh, willing to receive it. I believe he wants to get us ready for the upcoming sermon series, uh, which is in 2 Timothy. And uh, that's why we're going to study what is arguably the purpose statement for all of the pastoral epistles, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. 
It's found in 1 Timothy, and so we're going to study that today. We're going to get ready. It's going to kind of be an introduction of sorts to the pastoral epistles. Uh, But out of that, I I believe that God wants us to see the importance of of being a family, and and especially in raising up elders, which we're we're going to affirm a new elder tonight at our congregational meeting. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Lord willing, uh, that's what the Lord is doing here in our church, and uh, I hope that we're doing more of that in the future. Um, we are going to also uh, prepare our hearts that now is the time for our yearly renewal of our membership commitments. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit uh, as to why we do that. And um, we want to just repurpose our hearts in that way. And, and then finally, we want to we double down on our commitment to the type of relational discipleship and care that we want to see going on in our gospel communities. And, and, and that specifically through the one another study uh, that we have been going after in, the, uh, in our gospel communities through the, the Transforming Mutual Care book. And, uh, and so, really, all of that is nothing new or fancy. It might sound like a lot, uh, but it's really all tied together with this one simple thought. Be the church. Just, just be the church. Now that we've moved, what's next? We're, we're going to get after the same mission at a new location. And so today, I believe that it's essential for us to refresh our vision on what does that mean to be the church? How do we go about doing that? And so here's the big idea for today. Here's what I want you to walk away with. That, that you would be inspired to operate as God's family holding up the truth of Jesus by conforming our lives to His. That we would operate as God's family, holding up the truth of Jesus by conforming our lives to His. 1 Timothy 3, 14-16 is a very familiar text uh, in the history of Oak Hill, if you've been here for a long time, you might remember uh, things like the First Principles series. And, and we would go over First uh, Timothy three fourteen to 16 often. Um, I, I've preached this text as recently as 2021. It, it's, it's really one of the most succinct descriptions of the church and its purpose in all of the Bible. And so you're looking down in your Bibles at First Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14. We want you to see God's word for yourself. Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is what the church is to be. This is what the church is to be about. That we would operate as God's family, holding up the truth of Jesus by conforming our lives to His. We're going to start here. Uh, operate as God's family. Operate as God's family. 
Paul says to Timothy, I am writing these things to you so that at any time an author in a, in, in a book of the Bible says, I am writing these things to you so that or because, you want to pay really close attention, right? Because he right here is giving you a window into his whole purpose for writing this book. So really he's referring, when he says these things, he's referring to the whole letter. The whole letter. And what's in the the letter of 1 Timothy? Let's just remember, Paul is writing a letter to a, a young pastor who has been sent to Ephesus to get some things together there. To to establish qualified elders. That's the most recent context uh, of this particular passage that we're studying. But, but the whole letter includes things like, what do we do when we gather as a church? Who, who, is, who is supposed to be leading these things? Uh, how are we supposed to care for one another as the family of God, as, as uh, there's, there's older men and older women and younger men and younger women. How are we supposed to care for the practical needs? How are the, the rich in the church and the poor in the church supposed to view their belongings and their possessions? And Paul says, I'm writing all of this to you so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. That is a very important phrase, the household, the oikos of God. It could refer to a building structure, but in this letter, it seems to refer constantly to the family of God. Paul wants the church to operate, to function, to act as God's family. This is not just a little word that he's like, oh, this is a cute little analogy. Maybe I'll just throw this in here for some nice flourish so that I, I, I use different words and you know, I, I make sure that I don't sound redundant or anything. No, Paul has chosen this word, household, very, very purposefully. It's not just an analogy. This is a, a spiritual reality for God's people with very strong implications. God is the father of his family. And we, through Jesus Christ, are adopted into his family as children of God. But then what does that make us? Brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so the family of God is is really the most prominent, I don't want to say metaphor, reality, that shows up in the New Testament when talking about the church. This theme of family carries into 2 Timothy as well. Uh, The very first words of 2 Timothy include Paul calling Timothy his beloved child. And he's not just like blowing smoke at that. He related to Timothy as his own child. And he even goes as far as to say, you get your spiritual pedigree from being in relationship to me, even as we are together in relationship to Christ. Not only that, the theme is strong in in Paul's other pastoral epistle to Titus. We we see there a strong emphasis on the household order of the church. And so that's why we would say that this one text, I am writing to you so that 
you would know how you ought to behave in the household of God. This is the purpose statement for the pastoral epistles, and it is critical that we understand it so that we would understand how we need to function as God's church. But I believe that we can only approximate what this word, household of God, would have meant to Paul from our own cultural perspective. See, in the first century family, the family was the primary group identity. So in our day, we we tend to think of family as a, a mom, a dad, maybe some kids, a dog, a cat, living under one roof. And you, you might really, really love your family, but, and you might not, but the focus is mostly on the individuals in the family and their needs and their future individual success. Just think about our, our culture's perspective on family, and I think you'll find that to be true. For example, uh, parents love their kids. And so they raise them to be successful, high-functioning members of a society who won't need anyone else. They also look forward to being empty nesters. And empty nesters is a concept that would have never existed in the ancient world. You didn't ever have an empty nest. You raised your kids to take care of you. Kids today are trained to dream about what they want to be or do when they grow up. They, they long for the day when they can leave home and pursue their dreams, follow their heart, go find themselves. And wherever those longings take you, that's where you go. And often it leads you far away from your family. That would never be a consideration in the ancient world. As, as a result of kids moving away and pursuing their dreams, parents and grandparents often live far away from their kids and grandkids. And even when they do live close, they're, they're often not considered part of the household. You stay over there, we'll stay over here, maybe we'll have dinner sometimes. Sibling relationships were then way different than they are today. So I have a, a sister who's four and a half years younger than me, right? And we often say that we grew up as two only children, right? We, we, we just pretended like the other one didn't exist because if they entered our space, they were going to drive us nuts. And, and so it was just better to just like forget about you. Uh, I'm going to pretend like you don't exist. And sometimes we still operate that way. We're, we're going to be on vacation together this week. Pray for us. Uh, but uh, that would not have been so in the first century world. Get this. In the first century, brothers and sisters had the strongest possible relational tie. The the brother-sister relationship was considered more important, of higher value, of closer relationship than even husband and wife. The blood bond was stronger than the marriage bond. Now, in all of this, I'm, I'm just describing to you the weight of what's going on here. I'm not necessarily saying that first century culture had all of this right and we, we have it all wrong and we should go back to, you know, back to that way. I'm not, I'm not saying that. First century culture had its pitfalls to be sure. But what I am getting at 
is that for Paul to call believers the household of God, for him to say that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, is for him to use the strongest language available to him in his day about the relationships that we share in the church. To be a family would set a high expectation of loyalty and commitment. And this is really, really important because it's lost in our individualistic culture, right? So, so major life decisions, I've already talked about some of those, but, but things like who to marry, what job to take, where to live, they would have been made completely differently in the first century, even in the first century church. And Paul was not afraid, he was not afraid to go after the social structures of his day, but this is one of the social structures that he did not go after. In fact, he, he strengthened it and then said the church is to be like that. There would also have been a, a, a great responsibility for material and practical care of one another in the family. So if you, there was a financial need in the family, you were to take care of that financial need. And don't we see that in, in Acts 2 and in Acts chapter 4? Don't, don't we see that even at the end of the letter of 1 Timothy when he's talking about how to care for widows and, and, and what the, how the rich are supposed to use their wealth? If there was a, a practical need, like, like, you know what, he's got a tool and I need a tool, that's the kind of thing that the family would take care of. This could be the, the practical things of everyday life, like, like helping a, a young family within the church, you know, do their laundry, or helping a, a new mom in the, in the early stages of raising a baby. Uh, the, the church father, Tertullian, said this, he says, we call ourselves brothers, so... We are united in mind and soul and have no hesitation about sharing what we have. Everything is common among us except our wives. I'm really glad that he clarified that last part, right? I, just, I think that is the funniest quote ever, but it's so true. Like, uh, it's so, so demonstrating how they viewed. It wasn't just Acts 2 and Acts 4 where they viewed this. This is into the year like 200. That they're still practicing this kind of family relationship. This is how they understood their New Testament. Spiritual growth was not seen as some individualistic pursuit where I sit down with my Bible and download things from God. It was a community event. Ben Witherington says this, The community, not the closet, is where spiritual growth is worked out. It's so different than how we think today, isn't it? And so we've repeated this many times at our church. The church is not just like a family. It is a family. The church is not like a family. It is a family. And because the context of this phrase, household of God, is that of a first century Mediterranean family, that, that means that God intends that we would be more like the families of Paul's day than the families of our day. Just a, a little bit of the way that we read the Scriptures and what we believe about the Scriptures is that God gives us the Scriptures in a context. 
And it's not just a literary context of what comes before and after, but he also gave the scriptures in a historical context. He inspired real human authors in a real time and place, in a real situation, and he did that for a reason. There's a reason why he didn't write 1 Timothy in the year 2023 with the family models that we have. He chose to write it in the year 60, somewhere in there, with the family models that they have. So God ordained that, that we would feel the force and the weight of what it means to be the family of families and what it meant to the first century believer. And that means that we have a, a major uphill cultural mountain to climb. Because we, we just tend to view things very individualistically. And we've got to keep correcting our thinking and keep coming back to, no, I'm actually part of a family. And, and I'm part of a family in a way that, that nobody else in our culture is a part of a family. The family ties in the church are, are meant to be stronger than any family tie that we would imagine from an American Western perspective. But we can even see how difficult this would have been for the first century believers to understand in the very passage that we're studying today. Because he says that the church is the, he says, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God. And what is he referring to in that phrase? He's drawing a context, a, a, a contrast to the households of the gods within the culture. The, the temple structures and, and the, the temple cults that would have existed, right? And he's saying those temples, those households are devoted to dead gods. But the church functions as the family of the living God. He is our father. He is active among us. And so for a person to become a believer, they were turning their back on the culture of their day, which often meant turning their back on their families, their biological families, and entering now into a new surrogate family that was centered on the truth of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And so even though this is difficult for us in some different ways, it was difficult for them as well. And Paul had to do some convincing. Hey, you really should relate to these other believers like you would relate to your brother and sister in our culture. He, he had to command them how to function as a family. He had to say, this is how you need to behave as a church because it wasn't natural to them. Guess what? The way of Jesus is countercultural in every culture. And so if we're just like, ah, that's, that's kind of hard because it's, Again, it's, it's just out of my cultural comfort zone. Welcome to the club of every Christian ever in any place. Now, you might be here as a guest or, you know, you're checking out Oak Hill and this is like, who are these people? <laughs> now, this, is, this is completely foreign to any other church experience that I've ever had. But I, I want to assure you, this is what Oak Hill has been going after for a long time. And we are a family that is open to adoption through the gospel, right? 
and we want to keep pulling people into this family. This is the trajectory that we are on, and we're going to keep going deeper and more purposefully into that trajectory. And as people are added to our church family, it can be really easy to kind of drift on this because you, you, you kind of, you know, you got to get to know more people, and that's harder, and we got we got to get people caught up to that. And, but we want to refresh ourselves constantly on what that means. And, and, and so... Just by way of application, what, what is one of the primary ways that we purpose to do this at Oak Hill? Uh, it's in our gospel communities. Our, our gospel communities are set, are purposed to, uh, to be a place of relational discipleship and care. They are they're relational. Our gospel communities are about a people, not a program. So, so if, you, if you think gospel community and you think, a night of the week where I go to a place and I go through some steps, that's not a gospel community. A gospel community is the people who are there with you, who have purposed themselves with you to walk life with you. And yes, there's a night of the week that you all get together because that's how schedules work. But it's people, not a program. One way to state our goal for gospel communities at Oak Hill is that they would begin to feel like a first century family to you. Because that's how God wants us to relate to one another as his children. But let me say this clearly. The, the fact that we have gospel communities does not mean that that will automatically take place. This is not a, an automatic, like, you have the program, therefore you will be the family. The, the fact that you attend a gospel community gathering simply means that you have an opportunity for relationships to develop in this way. The program or the event is not the thing that makes the relationships develop. You, in your obedience to Christ, must develop the relationships. If you're waiting for the elders or leaders of the church to, to create a program that's going to magically make you become part of the family, you're going to be waiting for a long time. Because the best that we can do is provide environments, opportunities that are conducive to you living out Christ-centered, biblically-informed discipleship relationships. But here's the good news. We can't create it for you, but God already has. God has made us a family by adopting us through the gospel into his family. And we just need to live it out. We just need to live out that spiritual reality. We need to operate like the family that we are. And gospel communities are a way that we purpose ourselves to that end. It's then out of those relationships that discipleship and care are to flow. So it's not just relationships for the sake of relationships. It's not relationships that are, that are just about uh, having fun together or, or having a bunch of things in common, although that can really help. Have some fun with the people in your gospel community. Absolutely, go for it. But these are the relationships that are built for the sake of Jesus and his priorities. Discipleship is about helping one another grow in our dependence on and devotion to Jesus. That's how we define discipleship here at Oak Hill. We're helping one another grow, helping one another take the next step in our dependence on and devotion to Jesus. And part of our growth in Jesus must involve helping others 
grow in Jesus as well. And so that means that we gather together relationally and we focus on helping one another apply the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God as the people of God calling out in prayer to God. That's discipleship. Prayer in the Word with the Spirit in the people moving forward towards taking the next step in Jesus. That's how we help one another grow in our dependence on and devotion to Jesus. And that's the type of relational discipleship that we're all about in our gospel communities. But then there's not only relational discipleship, there's relational care, right? And and that's just realizing that we are embodied souls who live in a a real world with real trials, and we're going to end up with practical needs as we follow Jesus. Any of you ever end up with practical needs as you follow Jesus? Yeah. Thank you. Alden is the only needy person in the room. Um, We all have practical needs as we follow Jesus. And your gospel community is there to come around those practical needs. Especially when they occur as the result of getting on Jesus' mission. We're going to need even more care at that point because it's hard. But again, the the context for discipleship and care is is these, these church family relationships. The Bible has some things to say about how we relate to one another. The Apostle Paul had to teach the early church how to operate as a family. We, we often call those teachings the one another's. And so that's why, that's why, if you're like, why are we still learning about these one another's? It's because you need to be taught them. <laughs> I need to be taught them. I need to be reminded of them often. Because I, I can forget that, man, I, I'm supposed to forgive. I'm supposed to be forgiving to one another. I, I tend to forget that I... Yeah, I'm supposed to confess my sins to one another. These are all part of the way that we relate to one another. But it's never just about studying. We look for practical ways to practice these things. And so don't just study the one another's in your gospel community. Practice them. Get after them. It's about learning these patterns of relationship. It's about learning a, a new way of life together and and these things just aren't natural to us they're not natural to me and we have to be commanded and we must give ourselves then to those commands when we sing a song like i surrender all to you maybe that's one of the things that the lord would call you to surrender like i I don't want to live in relationship like that that's vulnerable that's hard maybe that's one of the things that the lord would want you to surrender today to give yourself for the sake of discipleship that occurs in relationship. This is also why we do intergenerational discipleship hour like we do. Uh, we're, we're almost wrapping that up for the summer, but, but this is, this is the, another angle at the same goals. So part of discipleship is the Word of God, right? And we need truth. And so in intergenerational discipleship hour, uh, we... Go after the the New City Catechism, which is just a very basic way of teaching theology, especially set up for all generations, where there's an adult version, there's a kid version. And so we want to remember and teach these basic doctrinal truths, 
but we realize that truth is best learned and is created to be learned by God in the context of family relationships, specifically church family relationships. And so we try to have this fun time as a big family, getting the basics of the truths, and then we try to allow the same people to consistently teach different age groups at their level so that they can know these truths. Relationships. Pouring into the next generation. They need to know what the doctrine is. They need to know why it matters. And so that's why we're purposing ourselves in intergenerational discipleship hour to study these things. This high view of commitment in the church is also why we renew our membership commitments each year. And that's going to be coming right now. I believe that there are, uh, there are membership applications in your, uh, I'm sorry, membership renewals in your mailboxes, uh, members, that will be for you. Um, and it's so easy to just let church become a thing that we do. To, to forget the, the loyalty and the commitment to which we are called, especially when we are steeped in an individualistic culture day in and day out. And so just like married people uh, might utilize their anniversary to renew their vows to one another and to just you know, read over those vows. Hey, what did we, what did we re- recite there? What did we promise to? So to the membership renewals are, are meant to just say, I'm still in this. I'm still committed. It, you, you, you tell your spouse or your kids, I love you every day, right? Why? Not because you stopped loving them, but simply because it needs to be restated every once in a while. And so we remind ourselves and one another of our commitments to one another that we are members of a family. And if you're a member, that recommitment form is there for you. Uh, bring it to your gospel community this week. Bring it signed. Eagerly do it. But the bottom line is, ask yourself, do I behave like I believe that the Lord, through the work of Jesus Christ, has made me family with the church? Do I behave like I believe that? Do I believe that because His work is primary in my life, the church is my primary family identity? And then how can I grow to reflect that more and more in my life, in my involvement in the lives of others in the gospel community, in my ministry to others, in my willingness to take responsibility for the the spiritual and the practical needs of the body? Being the church, operating as God's family, is the essential context for understanding and applying the truth of the gospel. And that is because the church is both formed and shaped by the gospel, and the truth is then given to hold up the truth of the gospel. The gospel does not remain the gospel without the church. Let me prove that to you. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are to operate as God's family, holding up the truth of Jesus. 
hold up the truth of Jesus. Paul gives us two terms uh, that are, were very important uh, even in the Ephesian uh, context where Timothy was located, right? There, there would have been, uh, the, on Timothy's horizon, every single day there would have been the Temple of Artemis. It was the most prominent, most visible building in the city. There's a picture of it up on the screen right now. Got that? Yeah, there we go. And uh, take a look at that. You see some pillars, right? And then you see those steps that are leading up. They were not, they're not just steps. They're not just functional in that way. They, they are also forming a solid foundation or buttress. So what are the pillars doing? They're, they're holding up the, this, top, uh, this top piece that is ornate. I mean, it's beautiful, and, and it's, it's where all of the artwork are. It's, it's where all of the, the honoring of Artemis would have been uh, up at the top there. They're, the pillars are holding that up. So they're not just making sure the structure doesn't fall over. They're holding it up high. They're, they're getting it visible. But then the buttress is there so that the thing doesn't fall over. That, that's, the, that's the steps. That's the foundation, right? It's preserving the structural integrity of the Temple of Artemis. And just like the Temple of Artemis had pillars and it had buttresses, so too the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It's the pillar in the sense that, that it promotes, it holds up in, in that sense, it, it promotes, it gets it high. And it's the buttress in the sense that it protects. It protects the truth. It makes sure that, that no Foreign doctrines stain this truth. The church is here to promote and protect the truth. Well, what is the truth? The truth is really all of God's word as it centers on Jesus Christ in his gospel. Right? The, the truth is the story of redemption, the truth that God has revealed through the apostles and the prophets through the Old Testament writers, and all of that comes to center on Jesus Christ, His person and work. And so the church is there to promote and protect the, the truth of the Scriptures as it centers on Christ. Now, how do we do that? Well, some people would say, make sure we know our doctrine. Amen. Absolutely. Other people would say, we, we make sure that we behave appropriately, that we're holy, that we show the world what Jesus is like. Absolutely. And it is always both, right? Because even look in the context, right? I'm writing to you that you may know how you ought to behave. And it's the behavior that will be the pillar and buttress of truth. Truth must be known. And truth must be applied. And so we, we can't ever be pitting this, this head knowledge versus heart knowledge against each other. It's always together. Always together. Wisdom and practice. Knowledge and application. It's never either or. So, how might this look? How might this be applied? Well, maybe as you're filling out your membership recommitment form, or, or maybe it's your, your first time membership application, go back and, and read the gospel in the way of the disciple statements that we have on our website. 
Like I think some of the, sometimes those things can become an artifact of ancient history. Like you see it on the page, you're like, do I still agree with the gospel in the way of a disciple? I guess so. I mean, nothing's changed. But go back and read them. And maybe even watch the videos that are there on, on the webpage that teach them. And recommit yourself to these things afresh. Another way that we would make sure that we remain a pillar in the buttress of the truth is by, by seeking out, affirming, and appointing elders who are qualified both to understand, they're able to teach, and apply. They have good character. And so we're going to be doing that tonight at our congregational business meeting. And really, the, the elder qualifications are the nearest context to this passage to Timothy. Lord willing, we're going to be affirming Doug Pritchard tonight as another elder. And our, our, our current elders, uh, Alden and David and I, we, we've taken him through a long assessment process. We, we've seen him in action. And we believe that he is a man who strives to promote and protect the truth of Jesus. He's not perfect. Neither are we. But he is qualified by God. And he, along with the rest of the elders, I believe, are given to this church to lead us as we hold up the truth of Jesus. And so we would urge you, affirm him tonight. Encourage him in that. Get after that with him. And then we, we need to be praying and seeking the Lord for, for more elders to be raised up over the course of the next couple of years. But it's not just the elders who are to promote and protect the church. Everyone in the church needs to be faithful and focused to this pursuit of what it means to be believers in the family of God. And so that's why we are going to study 2 Timothy. Remember, this is not just the purpose statement for 1 Timothy. I believe that this is the purpose statement for why he wrote all of the pastoral epistles. And that's why we're going to be studying 2 Timothy this summer. There are reading plans in your mailboxes. They, they give you an opportunity to read the scriptures, get dive deep into them before I preach them on Sunday mornings. Or uh, We're going to have a preaching cohort participate in, this, in the preaching of that as well because it's about equipping and raising up more qualified leaders. And so you read your reading plan, you work through that, you listen, you come to gospel community, you discuss with your gospel community, and then you apply, and then you repeat that's our pattern here at Oak Hill. Read, listen, discuss, apply, repeat. But our goals for this series is that as we get steeped in the truth of Jesus Christ, as the gospel dwells in us richly, as the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we proclaim Jesus. That's our mission, right? Proclaim Jesus, equip servants, send witnesses. So proclaiming Jesus specifically this summer is going to focus on the clear connection between the Lord's faithfulness to his saving work through Jesus and our faithfulness in the ministry to which he's called us. There's a clear connection between what Christ has done and what he's called us to do. And so we're going we're gonna to make sure that we never separate ministry from Jesus. And then we're going to equip servants. And this is a call to all of us to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ toward focused faithfulness in the various ministries to which they serve in the church. We've got to be encouraging one another. Ministry is hard. If you're doing it right, it's hard. And then we're going to send witnesses 
So we want each person to be focused and faithful in the ministry to which you are called. But then also asking, Lord, would you send me into a new place of ministry? Would, would you call me to, to maybe lead more or, or do something different uh, for the sake of your glory? And that really is the ultimate goal, the glory of God. That, that's the end of what it means to be the church. That's why we are the church. The ultimate goal of all these things is that the Lord would be glorified in the world. That's what verse 16 is really all about. Look at verse 16 again. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. How will we be the church? We're going to operate as God's family. We're going to hold up the truth that is in Christ Jesus. And we're going to do all of this by conforming our lives to him. We're going to conform our lives to Jesus. This is all about him. So Paul says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. When Paul uses mystery, he's not talking about like an Agatha Christie novel or something like that. He's talking about something that was previously not understood, not known, specifically in the Old Testament times, pre-Christ, and now is made known through Christ. And the mystery here is specifically the mystery of godliness. In the New Testament, the word godliness always refers to a manner of life that reflects God. And so when you put those two things together, there's a manner of life that reflects God, that was not previously known, that is now made known. And that manner of life is not a what, but a who. This is about encountering a person and allowing his life to shape our lives. Godliness is not about trying harder, doing better, being more perfect in your own power. It's about allowing the life of Christ to come to life in us. It's about appropriating all that he has done and living like it's true. And so this confession, which was likely some sort of hymn or confession, it's probably even parts that were just picked out of it, an existing hymn or confession, is a really interesting uh, assembly of facts about Jesus, right? It just, he was, he was, he was, he was. And so we want to look at, because scholars have a really difficult time understanding how this text is arranged or what, how the hymn is supposed to work together, I don't want us to focus on that so much as I want us to focus on how does this fact about Christ produce godliness in his people? How does this fact about Christ produce godliness in his people? So our confession of Christ is first that he was manifested in the flesh. What's that referring to? Pretty obviously it's referring to his incarnation, right? That the Son of God became human. That he added humanity to his divinity, fully God, fully man, 
and we saw him in the flesh. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? But what does that mean for us? How does that produce godliness in us? How is that the mystery of godliness? Well, it gives us an example to follow, right? See, in Jesus, we see exactly how God is. Exactly how he would behave. Exactly how he thinks. Because he is the perfect God-man. We have an example to follow in him. But aren't you glad that Jesus didn't just give us an example and be like, okay, here I am, be just like me. How many people would succeed at that, right? No, no, he was vindicated by the Spirit. So to be vindicated means to be proven righteous. It's actually the same word that we use as justified, right? But Jesus wasn't made righteous in the sense that we're made righteous. He was proven righteous by the Spirit. Uh, the entire life of Christ, we, we see even as he walks out of the desert and, and uh, the Spirit of God is leading him. Jesus said, the Spirit of God is upon me to proclaim the good news. We, we know from Paul that the Spirit of God is the power by which Jesus was raised from the dead. And so the vindication by the Spirit is the whole life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in righteousness. And what does he do with that righteousness? He gives it to his people. He counts us as righteous in Christ. And so he gives us a righteousness to grow into. We don't have to fight for righteousness. We don't have to earn righteousness. We have righteousness and we grow into righteousness. That's what we're learning about in our intergenerational discipleship hour. Come today. He's seen by angels then. Well, when was he seen by angels? Um, his whole life. That You can find angels from the beginning to the end, right? At the, at the mountain with the shepherds and, and at the empty tomb. But beyond that, when does Paul like to talk about angels the most or, or, or spiritual authorities in the heavenly places? When they're witnessing the church. The, the primary activity of angels is to be witnesses. And so this is the witness of the heavenly beings of Christ's whole work, but I think specifically in the church. And so Jesus gives his church a glorious and wise plan to display. We are his plan. We are the evidence that his salvation is effective. He brings together a people who are not a people. He, he shows what the victory of Christ accomplishes in his church. And then uh, he was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. This is pretty obvious. This is the advancement of the gospel through the church. So we, we have the cosmic perspective and now we have the, the earthly perspective, right? And so Jesus gives us a life-changing message to carry. We are not disciples merely because we are related to Jesus. We are disciples when we carry the message of Jesus to others in his power, in his authority. Finally, he was taken up in glory. He was taken up in glory. What does that refer to? It refers to his current reign. That Jesus right now is Savior and Lord over all and he will return and have his way among his people. He will judge the living and the dead. And those who put their faith in him 
will be taken into his presence forever. And those who do not will be cast into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is the glorious one. It all centers on him. So what do we do with that? What, What do we do with this reality of who Jesus is? We multiply disciples and churches globally and locally. It's as simple as that. We tell others about Jesus, and as they come to know Jesus, we strengthen them in the faith, and we assemble them into churches, and we send more out until the process repeats to all nations, because the commission is to make disciples of all nations. We have an elder planning weekend coming up July 14th and 15th. And one of the main things that we're going to be talking about there is what does that look like in our future? How are we going to make sure that we're making disciples here so that we can be effective in making disciples of all nations through the process of planting churches? We have a a, a preaching cohort coming up this summer. And some of the, the sermons in this series are going to not be preached by me. They're going to be preached by other men in our church. And I'm excited about that because we are equipping more and more people to be able to handle the word of God. Will they all become pastors of churches? I, I don't know. Maybe some of them will. They're like, ah, funny, Ben. But in, in that preaching cohort, we also have others who are being equipped, men and women, to teach the Word of God and to handle the Word of God appropriately. And so we've expanded our preaching cohort this year to a preaching and teaching cohort. And so not all of them will preach on Sunday morning. We have identified those who will, um, but uh, many are getting equipped to handle the Word in that way. Ultimately, uh, ultimately, the Lord has called us to this place in this building, and now that we have a building, as Nate preached last week, We have a place where we can raise and send. We have a place where we can raise and send. And we do that because of who Jesus is. We do that because of what is revealed in this text about our Savior and Lord. He is worthy for our lives to be conformed to Him. He is worthy for everything to center on Him. is worthy to be made known among the nations. And so we're going to go to a time of communion. Because communion is where we celebrate what he has done to make us a family. Communion is where we focus on our Savior and Lord and the work that he accomplished to bring unity among his people. So the ushers are going to come. The worship team is going to come, and I'm going to pray. And if you are a part of the family of God, if you have come to salvation in Jesus Christ, you know him as your Savior and Lord, you've been adopted as his child, then we would invite you to participate in the communion table. 
remembering all that, that, that comes along with that. Remembering that you have brothers and sisters nearby you because of what Jesus has done. And if you are not a part of the family of God because you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we'd ask that you just let the, the plate pass, that you not take of these elements because we want you to know that there are those who are inside the family and there are those who are outside the family. And you can only be a part of the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we would urge you, put your faith in Jesus Christ and become part of his family. His family is awesome. His family is amazing. Not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done in us. And so let the play pass. Think about what it means to become a part of his family by putting your faith in him. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could be brought into relationship with God as his child, and you could be made part of his family. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.